I intended just to be a talk really concentrating on the matter of Britain and what exactly we mean by the matter of Britain. We mean, of course, the spirit of Britain, the ideal of Britain. But this crystallizes as all national spirits, national ideals do crystallize in the form of a group of legends gathered in from all sources but centering on one particular figure which seems to that nation to be the embodiment of the kind of qualities which that nation regard as its ideal, what it's really all about. And whereas in Greece you've got such a figure as Achilles, the wrath of Achilles, the center of the Homeric poems, the Iliad, Heracles, in Germany you've got Siegfried, in France you've got Charlemagne, here we've got Arthur. And Arthur is the figure round whom legends from all sides have crystallized, from Wales, from Scotland, from France, from Brittany that is, all these legends have crystallized round this central figure, but what is very important, what's absolutely fundamental, is that there really was this figure. And because it has been doubted whether there really was another, and indeed the program that we all three listened to the other night about the other legends. The rather delightful young man who gave, who gave that program, he was uh, very nice to look at and very manner. But as a scholar, he was a It was a most unscholarly thought. And he ended up with a cracking piece of evidence in which he said, it's very uh, actually, there's no evidence that Arthur ever existed. Well, now that is just absolute nonsense. And I must say that, and it's because of that, that I feel I must start off, as I hadn't intended to start off, the sort of historical establishment of the figure of Arthur as a real person. It's so important. No national ideal can be built up around a non-person. There's got to be a person there. And it's the person there who attracts the legends to him. Of course, all the legends that are attracted round Arthur and the round table are not pure history in the sense that they were there contemporary with Arthur. Tristan and Isolde from one side and Lancelot from another side and so on. They were drawn in, Geraint, they were drawn into him and they all showed some aspect of the central qualities which they felt belonged to the ideal, but they felt that the figure which most summed up the national ideal, the idea of the national spirit, the matter of Britain, was the figure of Arthur. And this continued. And it's so far historical that no figure like that can ever need detailed historical evidence in the sense of manuscripts and so on, because the vivid picture of a person goes on from age to age and there is a sort of national memory which enshrines that thing. This is the sort of thing which I often say to my theological six forms when we're talking about the figure of Jesus Christ. And you get some of these ultra-liberals saying, oh, well, of course, you, we can't really know anything about him. Of course we can know something about him because this figure was remembered as a figure, as a central figure. It's because it was remembered so vividly that it attracts to itself all the other legends that's around. So I thought just at the beginning I would bring before your notice this book, The Age of Arthur by John Norris, who is a professor of London University, senior lecturer in history, University College London. And he is responsible for this, uh, for this series and this 
particular volume is called The Age of Arthur. And I thought I would just read you some extracts from his book, just as a preliminary, asking you perhaps later on to have a look at this book, which I'll leave on the side with the other Arthurian books. Have a look at the last inside cover page and see the reviews that he got. I'll just tell you the papers that he got these reviews in, all glowing reviews, praising it to the heights. Times Literary Supplement, Daily Telegraph, The Observer, The Irish Times, The New Statesman, The Economist, and The Sunday Times. You can't have a better list than that. All of them praising it for its historicity. Now, that's just as a beginning. But I want to go on and just read you the particular points that I want to make. Now, in history, we've got to go back. We've got to look at the age when the Roman Empire was in full decline. That is to say, the 4th century. And the first notable event to note in that time is the extraordinary business of the Emperor Maximus. Emperor Max, the Emperor Maximus was a, was a leader, a, a general, if you like, a, a, a commander of the Roman forces in Britain, and he was, as they were apt to do, he was proclaimed emperor by his own soldiers, and they then crossed the channel, and he, with his British troops, marched across Gaul, marched into Italy, and took Rome and for a short time actually succeeds in being a Roman emperor and Maximus. Now Maximus is rather doubtful whether he really did have any British blood in him. But anyhow, he went there with a British force. And from that time he was adopted, as it were, as a type figure for those times of Britain as the center, the natural center, if it had only survived, of this great empire. Well, that was in 338. And he took, he was accused by the later monks of having taken away all the British youth across the sea. And of course a lot of them stayed across. They stayed across in Brittany, and that's why it's called Brittany. And the Romans called it Armorica. And there they lived, and they still talk a dialect which is recognizably Cornish. Having been in Cornwall for 15 years, I can vouch for that. The fishermen tell me that they can understand the, they can understand the, 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 the Brittany dialect. And <coughs> they are, in effect, Britons. Well, then there was the, then came the time when the Romans left Britain in 410 and left the Britons to look after themselves. And there was a time of great conflict, and the leaders of Britain at that time had great difficulty in keeping out the invading Anglo-Saxons. Well, you're going to hear a lot about Anglo-Saxons from now till later on, and you'll hear about them in a favorable light. But I, of course, talking from the point of view of Arthur, <laughs> regard them in an unfavorable light. And they were, were invaders. And they came along with Hengist and Vortigern, who was the, at that time in trouble with other invaders from the north, the Picts, from which I believe my own family comes. The Picts were invading from the north, and Vortigern was unwise enough to enlist a lot of the invading Anglo-Saxons to come and help him keep out the Picts. Once you start inviting people in to come and help you push out somebody else, you then find it very difficult to push out the people you've invited in. And so Vortigern found himself in trouble. And so Britain was really in trouble from both sides. And in, in 440, I think it was, about 440 anyhow, there was a big Anglo-Saxon revolt in which they pushed to be allowed to be kept in this country, to be allowed to make a home in this country, and they, a war started between the Anglo-Saxons and the Britons. 
and for about 20 years this war continued and eventually the Anglo-Saxons defeated the Britons and a large number of them, about 12,000 of them, went overseas and joined their fellow Britons in Armorica, in Brittany, and they, again, this 12,000 people, it said, went across to Armorica and remained there, settled there. So Britain was temporarily denuded of, uh, of its own worries. Well, it was about that time that we begin to hear rumors of the kind of people we associate with Arthur. And the first one was, was uh, Ambrosius. And I'm going to read you just a little bit from various pages uh, in this excellent book. Now the second Saxon revolt took place in 570 and that was the end of the period. So from 460 to 570 you've got a sort of interim period of about 110 years in which there was a certain amount of flux between the Anglo-Saxons and the Celts, the Britons. And during that time we have very few records but we have got some records. And I'm going to read you a little bit uh, about one of these records from a monk called Gildas. Only one work outlines a connected narrative of 5th century British history. About 540, that's about, uh, that's within the period anyhow, the priest Gildas published a forthright attack on the princes and bishops of his day and began with a historical preface tracing the origins of the evils he denounced. One statement first set down within his own lifetime and copied by a much later writer reports that he was born beyond the Roman frontier in the kingdom of the Clyde. Well, that's as it may be. That's Gildas, anyhow. Now, Gildas then wrote his attack prefaced by something in the way of a history in which he included evidence Arthur. Gildas' narrative does not become real until he reaches the threshold of living memory, that is his living memory, about a hundred years before his own time. The raids and expeditions were followed by a long period of peace and prosperity, surprising isn't it, so rich that no earlier age remembered the like, that's a direct quotation. Prosperity bred luxury and vice, manifested in repeated rebellion against legitimate rulers. Then came a rumor that the Picts threatened renewed invasion, this time aimed at settlement. The foolish councillors and the proud tyrant, as Gildas called them, the government of Britain, invited three shiploads of the unspeakable Saxons to defend them against the Picts and settle them in the east of the island. The Saxons thereafter increased their numbers, rebelled, and physically destroyed the civilization of the island so that a large part of the survivors emigrated overseas taking with them such written records as remain. But in Britain a miserable remnant rallied under the leadership of Ambrosius Aurelianus, son of an emperor who had been killed in the troubles, whose degenerate descendants survived in Gildas' own time. Ambrosius initiated a long war of alternating victory and defeat that ended soon after a decisive British victory at Baden Hill, fought more than 43 years before Gildas wrote. That is, say, round about 490-ish, 495. Gildas' outline is amplified by a later monk called Nennius, in a mass of later documents. The fullest and earliest of them are contained in a collection of historical records first put together in the 8th century known by the name of Nennius. The compiler did not try to write a history. He says with truth, I've made a heap of all I found. And his editorship is confined to arranging his texts in what he considered to be their historical order. 
These documents are independent of each other and need to be assessed individually. Some are fanciful legends, some concern the 6th and later centuries, but two are of major importance for the history of the 5th century. The Kentish Chronicle, concerned with events between 425 and 460, that's before the uh, first, before the first Saxon revolt, and the work of a chronographer who strove to find exact dates for early 5th century British events. Both documents were probably first written not much later than the 6th century. They are supplemented by a great quantity of later British and Irish material and a little contemporary evidence. Now all that rather dull record does show you that there is a great deal of evidence. And the nonsense of this young man who had the impertinence to stand up and say there is no evidence that Arthur ever existed. Well, it's the sort of thing that, of course, gets across on the, on the BBC because cultured people who have no specialist knowledge are led astray by this because they believe that what he says is true. And now this young man, to show how unscholarly his approach was, in order to establish his particular point, which his particular point that he wanted to make was that if Arthur existed at all, he was a kind of border ruffian who lived up in the north between England and Scotland and uh, he wanted therefore to destroy any idea that he could have been the sort of author that we know did in fact exist. And he produced a chronology from the British Museum. I know this sort of thing because I do research in the British Museum myself. He produced this and he showed us a page of this chronology in which there was indeed against the date that on this date of Baden, the Battle of Baden, Arthur fought and he killed a large number of people himself with his own hand. And he said, this is just the sort of thing that the Welsh put in their documents in order to establish what they wanted to believe. And therefore, it is possible, he said, it is possible that this entry is not a genuine entry but was put in by the Welsh later on. He started off with, it is possible. Well, it is possible, but it's certainly not established. The next time he referred to this, he said, as we have seen, probably this entry was by the Welsh and was a purely invented entry and on no authority at all. The next time he referred to it, he said something like this. We have seen that we cannot trust the entry that is made there, which is undoubtedly a fantasy of Welsh thinking. He then went on to his own theory, and he took us up north, and he produced a chronology from up north, and he produced an entry there, which established what he wanted to believe. This he accepted unquestioned, and didn't even suggest that anybody could have put that in. Now, that is what I call thoroughly unscholarly work, and this is the sort of thing that may well lead to such an erratic conclusion as the statement that a particular character never existed at all. Anyhow, here's another section about in which he sums up this historical background. The general Gildas narrative and the contemporary evidence that dates it divide the history of 5th century Britain into three main periods. The generation from the break with Rome in 410 to the outbreak of the first Saxon revolt about 442 is the last age of Roman Britain. Then followed nearly 20 years of conflict between the Roman British and the Saxons or English that ended when the bulk of the organized southern British forces accepted defeat and sent their emigrants to Gaul shortly before 461. The third period, a generation of about 35 years, from about 460 to 495, witnessed the successful resistance of the British. That resistance was begun by Ambrosius sometime before the final victory of Baden its captaincy passed to Arthur. The outline of the next century is simpler. <coughs> British and English traditions both prolong the peace of Baden for three quarters of a century. A second Saxon revolt 
won decisive victories in the 570s and by the early 7th century had permanently mastered most of what is now England. Gilda's narrative is supplemented by a good deal of detail until about 460. From then on until the 530s, evidence is meagre. Thereafter, information rapidly becomes fuller and increasing contemporary and continental evidence gives growing confirmation and precision. Now, the material thing to notice is that Gilda's narrative gives, stresses the period that we recognize as Arthur's period following Ambrosius. He stresses that that period was a period of quiet, undisturbed life, which Gildas said was very bad for the country because it was turning people soft and they were living in luxury. Anyhow, it does suggest, doesn't it, at least a well-ordered government which was keeping the tribes in order. Now we turn to the legends about Arthur, and the legends are many, and the legends generally are very divided in their opinion of Arthur. Some which come from the monks regard Arthur as a ruthless leader, a leader who thundered as he went, and a leader who was very unkind to the tribes. Well, of course, as anyone who has, as I've done, uh, had to help in the government of wild tribes, he knows that you've got to be ruthless, you've got to be stern, severe, and the tribes don't altogether like it. So that if they pictured Arthur as a ruthless and rather savage ruler, that is only to be expected. At least it shows that there was an Arthur there and that he kept good order. And if you look at the map of the Britain as divided among the tribes at that time, you'll see what a tremendous business it must have been to hold the country together. This, according to Dr. John Morris, this is what in fact Arthur succeeded in doing. And I'll just read the... I've got in the pages, for any of you who like to look them up, further entries which you may like to look at, but this is, is summing up at the end. Whatever the place and cause of the battle of Baden, uh, of Camlorn, that is the last battle at which Arthur was killed, it was catastrophic. With Arthur died the unity of Britain and all hope of reviving it under British rule. In the next generation, Gildas denounced the anarchy that followed, but it didn't occur to him that a strong central government could or should be established to check it. He admitted Roman law and magistrates. He endorsed the 4th century criticism of the Emperor Maximus, that's the one who, uh, who took Rome, <coughs> a rebel against a legitimate emperor. And he praised the government of his own youth, that Arthur had headed. The, role of, the rule of Arthur had been an age of order, truth, and justice, to be praised in retrospect. But Arthur was also the author and patron of the duques, the leaders whom Gildas denounced. When his empire fell, it could have been restored only by the predominance of the brutal Maelgum, or of some other general, over his rivals, a tyranny that neither Gildas nor any other civilian could have welcomed. Arthur dominates and unites the history of two centuries. His victory was the climax and consummation of the fifth century's struggles, and his undoing shaped the history of the 6th century, the mould wherein the future of the British Isles was formed. He was at once the last in the West and the first medieval king of the country now called England. He left behind him the memory of a splendid failure. The storytellers who sang of a strong, just and chivalrous king might have chosen for their hero Edwin of Northumbria, or Maximus, or Cormac of Ireland, or Theodoric of Ravenna, or another famous name. They chose Arthur and preserved his essential story. Yet even the barest outline of who he was and what he did must be inferred 
from certain dubious uncertain hints. There is just enough to show that Arthur existed and was honoured in the next few generations as the greatest general and ruler of the recent past. Just enough to show that in Britain he subdued the Germans who elsewhere mastered Europe, that the prestige of his victory and the force of his character maintained for two decades a strong government against impossible odds among the ruins of Roman Britain. He left a golden legend and he rescued a corner of the Roman world from barbarian rule for a short space. Posterity may echo the judgment of the Norman historian William of Malmesbury. This is that Arthur of whom modern Welsh fancy raves, yet he plainly deserves to be remembered in genuine history rather than in the oblivion of silly fairy tales, for he long preserved his dying country. Now then, what does he really mean to us? Because that is, after all, what we're concerned. What does this figure tell us? A splendid failure, he called it. Indeed, a splendid failure. And in that, I think, people saw their idea. It was, and in the days when Britain was definitely a Christian country, their ideal was, of course, tied up to the figure of Christ. And the, they would tie up the sort of splendid failure that Arthur was to the sort of splendid failure that Jesus was, because in all appearance there was no such dramatic failure as the failure of Jesus who ended on the cross. But now does this fit in with the matter of Britain? Can we take this as Englishmen that Arthur does embody for the English a sort of really English picture of Christianity as an ideal. In fact, would our ideal, our King Arthur, have understood the story of Christ and his, how far Arthur himself was fully Christian, we don't know, but would he have understood the figure of Christ as this splendid failure? Well, let's look at Arthur as he's seen in the best book on Arthur that's ever been written, and that is the North Data of Sir Thomas Mallory, the man who gave us our figure of Arthur at its very best, and as the British idea. The same, the scene is Arthur's logic. After a great tournament, in which Sir Lancelot, Sir Gareth, and Sir Lavaine have stood out against the whole chivalry of the table round under Arthur. Arthur blamed Sir Gareth for having left his party and taken order, taken sides with Lancelot. And this is how the conversation goes. I'm giving you Mallory's words. My lord, said Sir Gareth, Lancelot made me a knight. And when I saw him so hard bestead, methought it was my worship to help him. For I saw him do so much, and so many noble knights against him. And when I understood that he was Sir Launcelot du Lac, I shamed to see so many knights against him alone. Truly, said King Arthur, unto Sir Gareth, ye say well, and worshipfully have ye done, and to yourself great worship. And all the days of my life, would you well, I shall love you, and trust you the more better. Forever, said Arthur, it is a worshipful knight's deed to help another worshipful knight when he seeth him in great danger. Forever a worshipful man will be loath to see a worshipful man shamed. And he that is of no worship and fareth with cowardice, never shall he show gentleness nor no manner of goodness where he seeth a woman in danger. For then ever will a coward show no mercy. And always a good man will do ever to another man as he would be done to himself. So then there were great feats, and all manner of noblesse was used. And he that was courteous, true and faithful to his friend, was that time cherished. Now there's something rather nice, isn't there, about the spirit of Britain. And that gives a sort of picture of the kind of things that Arthur approved. 
Now then, what was the final thing which brings Arthur and the figure of Christ close to each other? I think the final thing was when you come to Arthur in despair after the Battle of Camelot. Arthur had won the Battle of Camelot, but he'd been deserted by his wife, by his friends, and everything. And he is then in the heart of his despair. Now, does that tie up at all with the ideal figure of Christ on the cross? I think it just does, absolutely. Because I think the one thing that must have appealed most tremendously to the man who was on his left, not the man who was on his right, who had been consoled by Christ's promise of paradise, but the man who is on the left, who is no mere ordinary robber bandit, but was a, in the eyes of his nation, he was a hero who stood out against the wicked Roman oppressors. There he was dying, and he wasn't going to cave in for any promises of paradise or anything else. And Jesus, I think, understood that. And he was ready to descend into the very depths of despair with this man. That's why we find the despairing cry of Christ. So, Arthur, in his despair, is pictured in something the same terms as Jesus Christ was pictured in the Gospel where he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the last thing. Everything's gone. He descends to the absolute depths. And Arthur descends to the depths. Arthur is with us. He's the matter of Britain. And Britain has had her moments of near despair and never quite given in. And Arthur typifies that for us because that is there in the figure of Christ. Well, Geoffrey of Monmouth, of course, killed Arthur up into an ideal king in the early 12th century. And from that time on, Arthur attracted to himself, as I say, legend after legend, until we find the completed idea of courtesy, justice, and chivalry in the picture which Mallory gives us. No saintly figure like Galahad, almost too unworldly for us to love him, but a figure we can all admire and look up to, because he's in some ways like ourselves or as we would like to be. Galahad and Percival are too high and too pure, but Arthur is beautifully human. That's why he has been such a good companion to us. Those of us who like the stories about him, those of us who resent people who try to blot him out of history altogether. Can Arthur's experience perhaps help us with the difficult of saying, difficult saying of Jesus at the end of his, uh, uh, nearly at the end of his sufferings? It has been completed. It is finished. When Arthur reached the very depths, as he did, on the eve of his final battle of Camelot which Cornishmen maintain was fought by the ancient Clapper Bridge near Camelford, and which I know very well, still known as Slaughter Bridge. This is how T.H. White pictures him in the, in the Once and Future King. Here was only a man who had meant well, who had been spurred along that course of thinking by an eccentric necromancer with a weakness for humanity, Merlin. Justice had been his last attempt to do nothing that was not just, but it had ended in failure. To do it all had proved too difficult. He was done himself. But Arthur proved he was not quite done by lifting his head. There was something invincible in his heart, a tincture of grandness in simplicity. He sat upright and reached for the iron bell. Page, he cried, as the small boy trotted in, knuckling his eyes, my lord. The king looked at him. Even in his own extremity, 
he was able to notice others. My poor child, he said, you ought to be in bed. And there then follows his conversation with the page, whom the author, by a convenient telescoping of time, sees as Thomas Mallory, his youth, the creator of the figure of Arthur as we know it best. So Arthur says, sit for a minute and I will tell you a story. There was a king once called King Arthur, that is me. When he came to the throne of England, he found that all the kings and barons were fighting against each other like madmen. And as they could afford to fight in splendid suits of armor, there was practically nothing to prevent them doing what they pleased. So he gathered together all the true and kindly people that he knew, and he dressed them in armor, and he made them knights, and set them down at a round table. And for many years his new knights went about killing ogres, and rescuing damsels, and saving poor prisoners, and trying to set the world to rights. That was the king's idea. I think it was a good idea, my lord, said the page. It was, and it wasn't, God knows. What happened to the king in the end, asked the child, when the story seemed to have dried up? For some reason things went wrong. The tables split into factions, a bitter war began, and all were killed. The boy interrupted, confidently. No, he said, not all. The king won. We shall win. And as you know, Arthur won the Battle of Camelot, and there he suffered his grievous wound. And in the great work of Sir Thomas Mallory, the matter of Britain was born. Begotten of Arthur, revived by Alfred, revived finally by Alfred Tennyson, and thank God, still alive today. And that's why I think we all want to call Arthur to us and see in him not only the story of Arthur, but the Good Friday story as well. And that is why Arthur, I'm sure, could say with Jesus Christ, it has been completed. For there, I'll leave you and question this. Well, we we have a special family idea that the uh, Battle of Baden was fought at Baden, the village of Baden. Which is where? It's very near Liddington, where, which is one of the places which is uh, held to be a probable place for the Battle of Baden. But we know Baden because we used to go there, and it's you go up to Baden, it's the B-A-Y-D-O-N actually, but you go up a hill and then you get a magnificent view looking down. Now I can picture the cavalry, Arthur always worked with cavalry, that's why he was so successful in, 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 in making a mess of the Saxons. Arthur had cavalry, Saxons didn't understand horses. And uh, horses are extremely effective, as I know myself, among people who don't know horses. And you can create a terrific uh, impression by using horses and doing nothing else in particular. Uh, but there you've got this tremendous lead dance with that glorious view in front of you. And Saxon hosts are holding their spears like this. And I can just imagine that this would be such a suitable point which Arthur could certainly charge down with his people and defeat the Saxon so completely that they had to leave him alone for 70 years, 25 years, whatever it is. I mean, we don't know exactly how long it was. But uh, we like to think that. And it's near enough to what other people have thought <coughs> was, a, was a profitable place that I think we can uh, keep our little dream in. Well, unfortunately, the M4 goes through it now. 
Well, on the road beneath the hill. Yeah. Well, you haven't been there since. No. And we're still aiming to go and live with a farmer and get permission to dig things up and see if we can find something Roman. And as a matter of fact, in Demises, where we used to live, the museum has a very good um, collection of Roman remains found about Yorkshire, including uh, urns or early things from that area. Um, so I, and I think it's Ermine Street the M4 was built on, or it goes near there. And this place my husband mentioned Lillington, this um, young man he doesn't like at all mentioned that an early name for Lillington was Badbury, an early Celtic name. Not quite, it was something like that. Yes, yes well yeah. I read the book the other night again, and, um, or, uh, or um, a village very near, but I don't think he may mean, he doesn't spell it Baden as we know, B-A-Y-D-O-N. But um, that's coming up for near Swindon if you want to know, pinpointed near that. My wife always hopes that we should go there one day and walk about and happen to pick up. <laughs> I think we'd have a big long way down. Just pick up the piece of evidence, yes. Yeah, I want a Geiger counter or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got to go and make friends with farmers. <laughs> Can I make an observation on what might be the, what might be the other side of the coin? I'm not quite sure, really. Um, uh, I came across the most interesting biography of Tolkien the other day, and uh, he was, as you know, about Catholic, and what interested me was that uh, he had largely um, rejected the Arthurian legend as such, because apparently he considered that it had been in its essentials by the Christian influence. And he was mainly interested in going back to the pre-Christian uh, myth involved in the Arthurian cycle and rehabilitating that. And uh, from that, we got the Lord of the Rings, which I suppose is essentially a sort of, um, in a way, maybe the same myth, but in, in a pagan dressing. Um, and uh, it's at the same time what interests me as he was writing that or maybe it was a bit before you probably know Jung came up with the same uh, or should we say an accusation uh, that the Christian myth needed uh, renewing had, 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 um, had become debilitated and decadent and required renewing and it seemed to me rather interesting that at the time when he stated that, or somewhere around about, here was this chap talking actually working away possibly <coughs> on a, a total renewal of the myth from before the Christian time. Now this is an observation, but um, I don't know whether it's my own observation of it as an accurate one or not. Do uh, you find this a relevant comment? I think it's quite relevant, but you've got to remember that Tolkien was a research scholar. And he was a research scholar in Anglo-Saxon and Celtic and all these, all, all these Nordic languages. What he was concerned with was the actual particular relevance of these legends which, are, which came to crystallize themselves round off. I very nearly put among those books, and I don't think I did put, uh, the French romances, the, the high history of the Grail, the Mabinogion, all of which I've got, which are of course enshrining all these Welsh legends and, and these French the legends of Brittany too. They're, they're all clustered together on Arthur. In a sense, I suppose in that sense, yes, you can say it's spoilt Arthur as a historical figure, because you've got to say that legend doesn't tie in with Arthur. Durek wasn't Arthur's period, Tristan wasn't Arthur's country, and, and you can say all that. And that is true. But if you're talking about Arthur in the sense that I am concerned to talk about, mm. Arthur as seen symbolizing, there must be something in Arthur, there must be something in that central figure which wants to attract to itself a fundamental importance for the people who hold those letters, who, who tell those letters. If the people who tell those letters for whom those legends were important, think 
that they are that Arthur was important enough for them to tie their legends to him, there must mean something about Arthur. And the the the, the Cork and uh, and Oliver legend that you get in there, and various others of those things, they, they've got a lot of Arthur in them. Quite a different Arthur in a sense, but having some elements which could fit in with Arthur. And they tend to make them fit in because they want them to fit in. So in a sense, the matter of Britain, with Arthur at its centre, Arthur at the head of the table, does include all the knights of the table round, whatever that period, whatever that particular quality is and so on. And it's, it also includes, of course, the essential figure of any such community and any such table, and that is the figure of the traitor. There always is the traitor. And there again, you can find that prototype in the in the, in the figure of the Last Supper and, and, and Judas being there. You've always got to have, uh, as Jung would say, the trickster. Yeah. So we're on the line. It was interesting that in that, I think, fine book, the quest for Arthur's Britain by yes, the archaeologists, which you've got there, haven't you there? But they do have uh, a chapter about the legends at the end, and even all those archaeologists getting down to the mere facts, to the real facts there, do admit that the legends, although they are from their point of view nonsense, uh, obviously, about a Saxon king, about a British king, nevertheless that the, they admit the legends to be a force in themselves. Yeah. And this sense of the operative power of a myth leading right through as they admit even T.H. White as being part of the cycle and what about Mary Stewart's trilogy on Merlin how do you yes. assess them yes yes oh, and there are so many good novels and so many bad ones too but there are so many good novels written about the Arthurian theme. Such novels as uh, uh, Mary Stewart's, of course, and <coughs> the... Uh, There's Patrick Blakiston trying to get in. Oh, uh, 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 he knows the way. He knows the way. Does he know the way? What's the name of the author? Is it the Sword of Sons? Rosamund Sunday. Forgotten now. Sutton. Sutton. Yes, Rosamund Sutton. Rosamund Sutton. That's a very careful novel. There's a, a lot of real research Pendragon is another careful and the Crystal Cave, all these things are, they're, they're written you can't write a novel of that kind without a good deal of know-how, and those people who have tried to do it have written bad novels and sometimes one is that it's not just a little bit more than know-how well, it needs a great deal of imagination too but then as Joan says, when she's accused by the French nobleman not saying the Joan, you remember St. Joan? Mm. Um, she's accused in Bernard Shaw's play by the French Oh, but Joan, these visions of yours are pure imagination. And Joan answers, but don't you realize that imagination is the instrument through which God speaks to us? I, I think that's God. I think we took, we took, we take too much, too little notice of, of the importance of imagination as not only as something which produces fine flowers and enjoyable things, but as real instruments for discovering truth, essential truth, as against factual, historical, or the other kinds of truth. We British on the whole, we tend to think that if we tell factual truth, which is impossible to tell anyway, <coughs> that if we tell factual truth, uh, we've been all right, and they were very clever at telling lies by telling factual truth, and so it's something it, that it, it produces a false impression. And then we say, well, thank God I didn't have to tell the lies. In fact, we've told two. <laughs> not only told the first lie, but we told ourselves it wasn't a lie. Whereas a nice African who I used to know, I mean, they would tell us most beautiful lies, but they'd be lies told in all sincerity, and they did not expect us to take them factually. But they, uh, they were sincere lies. 
do you leave me with the impression that the first uh, idea of Arthur's round table came from Mallory and there's nothing further back? Oh, no, no, oh, no. I think, uh, I think you, you go back. Well, you go back. You're talking about the round table. Uh, the, certainly Arthur and his knights go back far beyond Yes, but I mean, um, uh, this story and the, the, the way Arthur is said in Mallory to uh, told the story to the little page, is that Mallory's imagination? Well, there anything to build it on. It's T.H. White's imagination. What? Too. That particular story is T.H. White's imagination, but oh. it's a very nice bit of imagination. Oh, well, whatever it is. Um, it so fits in with, uh, I mean, yes. it corresponds with what Thucydides says every historian should be careful to do. When the historian puts a speech into the mouth of one of his favorite characters and doesn't know what the character actually said, Thucydides said that's quite all right so long as he's very careful to make that speech tie in with the genuine character which is tested of that person through history. But you've got to do that. You've got to... Uh, it's legitimate to use your method as Thucydides in that great speech of Pericles over the dead. Pericles over the people, the Greeks who had fallen in that magnificent battle. Uh, Pericles' speech. Now nobody imagines that there's a that's a verbatim report of Pericles' speech. What Thucydides felt quite sure that he must have said, and it's exactly the sort of thing that Pericles would have said if you read the history and see the sort of person that Pericles was. And I think T.H. White has touch something when he writes this book. I think there's something really genuine in that book. And also in Rosemary Subjects. Well, thank you very much. They both picture Arthur's final despair, which I think is, is one of the uh, key points. The despair which he didn't finally give in to. I gather there's a, a film called Pendragon, which in fact uh, you told me about uh, a few months ago. Um, has anyone seen it? Or have you seen it? I haven't seen it. No. Uh, there is a film, Excalibur. Oh, Excalibur, sorry. Excalibur, yes. I've seen that, yes. Yes, that's Others seen good. that? Yeah. Is it good? Is it good? No, and yes. I think if you get the chance, it's worth the seeing. Have you seen it? No. It's bloody, but then of course that it does bring home the point that it's so easy to gloss when you talk the glamour of uh, uh, chivalry and that kind of thing. How extremely bloody and unpleasant a war with swords and lances must have been. What it really means to get a lance coming through your chest or have a sword cutting off a leg was an extremely unpleasant business and this film doesn't gloss that in the least. And it's a bit flamboyant and uh, altogether. But nevertheless, it's quite an experience. We went together, didn't we? Okay. And we did sit through it. We couldn't stop oh, sitting. Absolutely. There was no question of going out. Oh, not more. No. <laughs> no. And the grail came in at the end. And, uh, we did use the technique that was said really quite imaginative today in a sort of way. Yes. Well, I was going to ask actually, do you think that uh, the, the Arthur has become in any way the sort of archetype of the British character or the English character, or do you think there's a distinction between the British and the English character anyway? Um, and if so, what are the most archetypal qualities? Well, you, you've already mentioned some of them. Endurance, for example, in, in difficult times and so on. I think that uh, I think we could certainly say that he's an archetype of the English character, and I would say English rather than Anglo-Saxon, rather than <coughs> Celtic, rather than normal. Because after all, you've got to remember that England is much more homogeneous in its people than we're worth to suppose. After all, the Celts went across to Armorica 
as I told you in my, in my historical introduction. The Celts went across to America in two sections, two lots, and they became Britons there. And then the, uh, what, to them the wicked Anglo-Saxons came in uh, and they did a lot of bashing. And then the Anglo-Saxons settled down. Don't tell me they didn't intermarry at all. Of course they did. And we became then a mixed race, but with a strong tinge of Anglo-Saxon, an Anglo-Saxon solidity, an Anglo-Saxon unimaginativeness there, until the British came back. The Normans came and conquered us. But who came across with the Normans? All the Armorican people. All the people who had been driven out. By the who are the Armoricans, sorry? The Armoricans are, in fact, the people who went across to Brittany. Uh, Brittany is Armorica. And yep. they, they were the people who went across and settled there. And when the Normans came back, they came back with them. So the Norman invasion wasn't so much an invasion of foreigners. It was the return of people who had gone overseas a good deal. So that in the end, by the time of Mallory, you find that there you've got a, a people who are not a mixture of races, but simply an amalgamation of two races. The German, with its solidity, its endurance, its stiff upper lip, and all the things that public school sort of uh, morality uh, admires most, and also the flair, the intuition, the imagination. You've got the, this in our race, and some people have more of one, some people have more of another. But they both belong to the matter of Britain, and you can't do without either of them. You must have the two. You can't live through things just by flashes of intuition and bold, uh, enterprising bits of courage. You've got to have something of the endurance, too. So this welded together. Melville <coughs> saw, and so he translated Arthur and all that he was, and all that he did, and his courage and his endurance. He translated it into the spirit of the country of his times, and it is, I think, a work of genius. And it has given us something which we, we do now call uh, the matter of Britain. And uh, C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams, writing in Arthur and Torso, they're very keen on the term Lodris. What is Lodris? Lodris is not Britain as it ever was, but it is ideally Britain as it might be. Lodris, which you find, you'll find it in Mallory, you'll find it in a lot of these old writers, as the name for Britain, but it's a, a sort of idealized Britain. Which is Albion. Albion, of course, Blake takes us on to that, and you're going to take us on to that later on. Can you say a word about the present, more or less, revival of Celtic interest? There's a sort of obvious Celtic interest, impulse afoot, and which seems, I think, to us to be significant. Even we in Weekend Trust, you see, have taken that symbol of the cosmic cross, which is really the Iona cross, seen three-dimensionally, which seems to represent uh, the more esoteric vision of the cosmic Christ, which is so important nowadays and therefore carries with it in the Celtic revival not a staring again of the mere Celtic folk soul, but an impulse which is really the impulse towards Logris, I suppose. Logris, which is, after all, an Afro Britain. And uh, this, this, is, uh, this is very. This, uh, uh, you will be talking to us about it. And surely this Celtic spirit which has come up in us is emphasized in us that it's not good enough to be just practical and down to earth and solid. You've got to have the light to. to to keep, the, to keep the nation bubbling. Otherwise, you go dead. You get what Jung calls stuck. You get stuck. And once, you get, once you're stuck, you've had it. You, we've got to be dynamic and kept moving. Well, it's the Celts. 
isn't it, who keep us moving. And the Celts who turn our thoughts inside, but to an inside which is you, you were saying yesterday. A new space age. Because Jung has discovered and emphasizes to us that the space into which we get when we are esoteric looking inwards is not a narrow space, not a funnel into which we are looking down to a point. It's, a, it's an hourglass. We are at the waist of this hourglass and directly you get through it, it opens out into a new space. New world, if you like, it's a black hole. What do the scientists say? What happens when you go down a black hole? Oh, well, they say, and an airy sort of fills this kind of language. They say, well, you get into perhaps a new universe. They don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> but, but anyhow, they, they are, even the physicist is beginning to get a touch of realization of the need for imagination and going off into something new and fresh and lively. So that uh, I, I, you need, you're happily placed, of course, aren't you? Because you're just between the Celts and the Anglo-Saxons, and they're in Shropshire. Here we are, and in the Merlin country, have not you? And the same. I mean, you go up to Scotland, where you're in the land of the Sheehan, where it no longer seems absurd to tell the story of the minister who was carried off by the Sheehan, by the fairies, and where all. Where you get really real fairies, none of this nonsense of Victorian fairies flapping about on the top of Christmas trees or in the flowers in the garden, but real wicked fairies who are, who are mischievous fairies, fairies who have this sort of liveliness anyhow about them, fairies who have what you would call the spirit of the trickster. And I, I think all this is necessary. You've got to have the rub. If you haven't got the rub, and you have got the rub if you, in the map of Britain, because you've got the Celts, you've got the Anglo Saxons. And they are very nicely being rubbed together. And the Normans came in after all, mostly Celts returned. So there we are. Think you've also got a little Roman influence filtered down from those days. <coughs> it's extraordinary how little influence the Romans had on the countries that they conquered. How little Roman Rome who conquered Greece was conquered by the defeated enemies. Greece conquered her conquerors, I mean that's a consequence. And uh, Rome never succeeded. Rome had a great gift for imbibing the culture of foreign nations. But it wasn't very good at producing anything except its legal categories and so on. Latin is a magnificent language for legal study, it's a magnificent language for history books and so on. It is a language in which it's very difficult to write poetry. Some Roman poets managed it, but uh, for instance it doesn't compare with Greek, which is a naturally poetic language. However, that gets flooded by the way. Well, are the Italians killed? A lot of them are, yes, aren't they? They came down. The French but the, would be, wouldn't they? The Italians, but the, the Romans, the Romans who we think of, well, after all, what were the two great Roman qualities? Gravitas. Gravitas. Good, solid, big. And quietus. Tendence of the gods. The tendence in a very discreet and, and uh, uh, you know, everything decently and in order sort of way. But this is, this, is, this, is, this is the Roman way, but I don't think there's all that much Roman in us, except I think perhaps the organization of our colonies has had something of a Roman in it. French always boasted they were Roman in the organization of the colonies, but I don't think they were nearly as Roman as we were. Surely there's a, an important parallel between the British Empire and the Roman Empire. I would have thought that's yes. very significant. Yes, the organization is probably. And an important parallel between the end of the Roman Empire and us. With <laughs> yes, the Logris, Catacomb, Celtic, Esoteric Christianity, all this on the bubble. But we're going with the stream because we have voluntarily turned our empire into a commonwealth. Whereas the Romans didn't. They had to be smashed, as it were. They had to be smashed in the Hmm. 
any any other comments or questions yes. arising out of that? Yes, now, how important do you think it is to see Arthur as, as a Christian king? It's always emphasised in, in the legends and the tales. It seems uh, a very important part of his makeup. He seems uh, as a Christian king against the, the Saxon pagans as part of the darkness that's coming over the land. Because the monks, yes, well, Arthur is a Christian figure. The monks didn't like Arthur until the 13th century. Because the monks generally didn't really know much about Arthur except from the local peoples all around them up to that time. And the monks took the figure of Arthur <coughs> as the people said, Oh, he came into our village and he, he took all our goods away and oh, he was a bad man and so on. Arthur got a rather bad reputation among the monks until then. But then the, all the crystallized figures that were coming into Arthur, they all formed a kind of corporate figure, a kind of sort of beehive figure. And this figure was what the monks then produced. But on the whole, Arthur was not uh, a church figure. He was not an ecclesiastical figure at all. As a Christian figure, yes, because there was no doubt that he did do a lot of delivering people from the oppression of local chiefs and that sort of thing, which is after all quite a, a good Christian activity, unless you are so much of a pacifist that you don't even uh, persuade that you can't even be persuaded to keep a, a heathen tribe in So that. Arthur did have enough Christian qualities to attract to himself a Christian chivalrous reputation. Otherwise, they'd have chosen some other figure. I mean, Edwin of Northumbria, why not? All sorts of, there were all sorts of people around about that time who could have been that figure. But you see, Arthur was a bigger figure than Charlemagne. And he went overseas. And Germany adopted Arthur. And France adopted Arthur. And Italy adopted Arthur. And th there must have been something about him to do that. Because it wasn't because they loved Britain as a country. There was something about him. And I think that I would answer your question by saying there must have been something essentially Christian in the memory of Arthur, which is passed down from age to You know Jung and his view of the collective unconscious and that sort of thing. This is something really valid. Or if you like to be platonic and talk about anamnesis and the doctrine of the, that you don't think ideas, you remember them. From, and so on. Whatever frame you like to give it. I think the fact that there is in our minds a memory of something which we've never seen is part of the evidence for the kind of person that Arthur was. I would say so anyway but then I, I, I'm ashamed of you. <coughs> Any other comments? Well, I'm going to stop I'll leave this now, book on the side. I'll leave this book on the side. It's got, there's bits of paper in it which have got pages marked on, page numbers marked on and you'd like to look and see the things I've penciled down on those pages you might you can look at all the bits that I left out I found I'd penciled down far too many bits I didn't want to go on boring you with quotations well on all our behalf so I'd like to thank my father for what the most inspiring and fascinating talk <laughs>